This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha in Caverns, deep below the metro area, it's our pleasure to welcome you to episode 697 of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Book Podcast. I'm your head number one, the Internet's Joe Patrick. And Matt, I can't think of a better way to celebrate International Women's Day than talking about mega macho comic book bounty hunters. I am your head number two. My name is Matt Baum, and I'll blame myself here. I came up with a theme, but Joe... We could both look at a calendar every now and then. And you know, it's something we can do. I mean, <laughs> better late than never, uh, you know? Now, with that said, I did slip a female bounty hunter in there. You know, subconsciously. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> okay, it just happened, all right? Yeah, you planned it all along. It's time for another Cosmic Longbox episode where we're chasing down fugitives and ne'er-do-wells for money while we talk about classic back-issue comics based on a the theme. You may have figured it out. It's Bounty Hunters. There you go. After that, we'll set you up with our must-read picks for next week. But now, there is no running from the Cosmic Long Box. It's back issue review time in the Ziggurat. The Mandalorian Season 3 dropped last week. Thank you, Macho. So, the CLB has us exploring the world of comic book bounty hunters. Joey, it is a dirty job, but these characters got to do it. And it does seem like it takes place in space more often than not. Am I right? <laughs> well, there's definitely a lot of space, you know, when you're uh, okay. talking about... All right, that's fair. fair. When you're talking about Earth-based bounty hunters, it, you kind of run more up against sure. your, like dog the bounty hunter type situation and not so much your lobos which come in it's Omega Man number three how was that for a segue that wasn't bad thank you this is from DC Comics it was 1983 the writer is Roger Slifer or Sliffer I'm gonna say Slifer because saying Sliffer makes me feel uncomfortable I'm not sure why okay it's just one of those things I don't you know uh, the art is by Keith Giffen and Mike DiCarlo here is your solicit courtesy of mycomicshop.com Callista, Harpus, and Schlagen take the Omega Man mothership through hyperspace to Euphorix, but emerge at unexpected coordinates, striking a passing meteor. Schlagen goes out to effect repairs, but discovers a large, shapeless organism attached to the side of the ship. The organism breaches the hull and enters the lower quarters, where it spawns dozens of smaller predators Gross. that immediately begin attacking the ship's electrical systems. Gross! To complicate matters even further... A group of bounty hunters led by the alien known as Lobo boards the ship. I, I would say a Lobo. I don't know if it's the Lobo. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> That's right. That's right, you bastards. Omega Man number three is the first appearance of the main man himself. But don't expect any sleeveless leather jackets, chains, or space motorcycles. This is a completely different character than we've become familiar with. He's still got wild hair and is a total badass. And okay, maybe he sort of rides a space motorcycle, eh. but it's more like a space moped. But this Lobo is more like a deadly rogue in a dandy spandex costume. But he still gets the job done. The rest of this issue features the ongoing plot about the Citadel's attempt to conquer the planet Euphorix and the Omega Men's attempt to stop them. Slifer and Giffen populate this corner of the galaxy with a bizarre collection of truly alien beings and their very alien mating rituals. <laughs> it's a far cry from a lot of human-centric sci-fi stories. Slifer's dialogue is a little goofy, but the story doesn't pull any punches. No one is safe here. This comic book is brutal. And while I'm not sold on all of these character designs, looking at you, Mr. Man with the weird floppy uh, vagabond hat. Yeah. Ooh. Keith Given, what? he's supposed to be like a terrifying bounty hunter. I know. What I was, What about the gross guy with all the tentacles? I'm like, ah, God, he's just yuck. <laughs> there were a lot of tentacles. I mean, it's 
space baby he looks like cottage cheese that you left in the fridge too long it's just really gross <laughs> i think there was like a parasite that they were using to like absorb the i think maybe anyway i think so you gotta read the comic regardless keith giffen is a master i've loved his work nearly my entire life the omega men number three is a fun surprisingly intense read that brings a fan favorite bounty hunter to the dcu Sort of. It just takes a while for him to become the Lobo that we're we know and love. <laughs> I'm still giving this a buy it. Like I did not know that in 1983 or four or what year or wherever year this was that the Omega Men was out there like driving dudes' noses through their brains and stuff. It's like really intense. Yeah, I mean they were badasses. Apparently, I never read this Omega Men, so I it's kind of a blank spot for me. The only Omega Man I know is Tigor, and a little bit I know Doc. Yeah. Because they were in, you know, they appeared in stories that I read in Starman and the Tom King series. I don't know any of these other Omega Yeah, I really don't know much about them, but they're badasses. And this book was surprisingly fun. The art is excellent. I love Keith Giffen. And this is yes. like my favorite Keith Giffen. Like Keith Giffen kind of aping yeah. 2000 AD sort of British comic sci-fi a little bit. He's really mm -hmm. good. Uh, I will say this comic is so horny. <laughs> it's very horny. It's the beginning, especially crazy horny. They even have like really, a, it's all in the beginning. A bear, like a full on nude, but blocked shot of the, of like the character that's leading the team for no yeah. reason. No Callista, reason. Right? Is it, that's Callista. I, I believe so. Yeah. I like to think of this Lobo as maybe he was like a younger Lobo. And then he has like a midlife crisis and he like goes to his, <laughs> you know, like your orthodontist who is like, I've never done anything cool. I'm going to buy a Harley, you know, and like, and maybe I'm going to start yeah, wearing right, leather yeah, jackets you know, on the weekend. Like, and and he just, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do yeah. it. And, but, I'm going to buy a motorcycle. But he just leaned into it a little too much, you know, and also started yeah. juicing because he's not the big ripped yes, up dude. No. That he is. So <laughs> I, I'd be like, maybe this is Lobo before he goes back and murders every last Zarnian. Yeah, you know, maybe absolutely. this is like. He's out there on his rumspringer, right? You know, kind of becoming the the man he he, he becomes. But or maybe oh, something yeah. really uh, terrible happens to Lobo off panel, and this he deals with it by turning into a complete son of a bitch. I don't know. Or you know what? Or or maybe maybe they just very rightly figure out that nobody is going to take a bounty hunter that dresses like duo damsel from the Legion of Superheroes yeah. seriously. So, you know what we just did? We just wrote Tom King's Lobo is right there. So start in this <laughs> yeah, costume right. and then <laughs> the, show, the, the gritty. show me how he progresses to, you know, like yeah. the Lobo we know and don't really the, love the, anymore. things down to earth just for a minute we'll be back in space in no time for daredevil number 150 from marvel it's 1977 was the year this was written by jim shooter with art by carmen infantino i swear shooter got paid by the word for this one because wow there are he write so this. many words in oh this my comic. god here is your setup i wrote this dd is on the trail of the purple man but so is the mysterious paladin while daredevil knows the purple man used his powers to force heather glenn's father Mort to kidnap Debbie Harris. He can't use that in court because there's no way Matt Murdock would know. He's just a lawyer who is definitely not Daredevil. Wink, wink. So when Mort hires the Paladin to track down the Purple Man, it puts him on a collision course with Old Hornhead. I don't remember the last time I read Jim Shooter on Daredevil, but he certainly has his own idea of Matt Murdock. Sure, huh. not only wants to let you know what Matt is thinking, he wants you to know everything Matt is thinking, packing his panels with thought bubbles. And I don't just mean like the old school Batman, like got to wrestle away the remote before Joker detonates the clown car. You know, not just that. It's like him sitting in a lazy boy chair going, oh man, I sure I'm bummed and I can't just like be daredevil on the stand and tell everybody I know about the purple man, but like, <laughs> chill out we get it <laughs> and also like i don't need to dodge that bullet and here's all of the reasons why i yeah. don't have to dodge that bullet. everybody and it's not like, just the paladin too he's like he didn't even need to dodge that bullet he knew i wasn't gonna shoot it <laughs> got it guys 
let the pictures tell some stories. That's all I'm saying. His paladin was a bit of a departure, too. Not only does Carmen Infantino draw paladin with a purple cape and a puffy green shirt, but Shooter writes him as this rich dandy who will take time out during a fight to flirt with the hot ladies staying at the local YWCA, (laughs) which was a thing back in the day. Yeah. Paladin, who is billed as a man of mystery with no known background, also likes to take his mask off to have a talk with Daredevil after their fight when they realize they're both trying to find the purple man. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. Infantino's art is tremendous. The guy is a legend for a reason, but this first appearance of the Paladin is definitely not the model for the bounty hunter that I know and love going forward. I liked him a lot, though. Shooter has him oozing with gentleman roguish personality, but I'm glad he ditches the cape and matador shirt later. I'm going to give us a buy it because it's crazy and it looks great. Infantino draws the hell out of it. Jim Shooter. It should not have been allowed to write Daredevil. It's just too much. Just yeah. relax, man. It's a visual medium, you know? Yeah. So this is a buy-in for me as well. It's great fun. It's like this paladin looks ridiculous. Like, like nobody was like Carmine. I think people were afraid to tell Carmine Infantino that this design is really terrible. I think so too. Because, like, this is the guy that invented the silver, like, he created Barry Allen. What are you going to do? Tell Carmine. It's right. like telling Jack Kirby, to, like, you can't do that, Jack. You can't. Yeah. You can't put a helmet that big on a guy, Jack. So, yeah, he looks very, very silly. This is right in line with all the paladins I've ever read. You know, I've never read a, a story where paladins is, is like, no, he's a very serious bounty hunter that's focused on the mission. No, I suppose that's true. He just doesn't dress like an imbecile. <laughs> he doesn't dress like a, t- a complete moron. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I do like that this uh, Jim Shooter's version of Daredevil is not afraid to smack the shit out of a kid. Yeah, man. Like, this, like this, the beginning of the comic, there's like a kid that's he's upset and he's got a gun and the cops are like, shoot him. And Daredevil's like, no, he's just a screwed up kid. And the kid's like, you don't understand. My mom's mean and stuff. And Daredevil's like, shut up. <laughs> and just slaps him. He's like, kid, you better listen. <laughs> I read this kind of first because you and i were joking about paladin when we were making our picks uh over the weekend and i at first forgot about the whole courtroom scene being a dream yeah and so i'm like why the hell is this judge wearing a hood is he gonna kill a guy well there's no and lead like, into it at all it, it's just like, yeah no it's just like they're in court and it looks real and it's yeah but no and there's not. multiple foggy nelsons and daredevil yeah, is it's, talking it's to matt murdoch i was like whoa what is going it, it's on? Pretty, it's pretty wild. <laughs> Shooter uh, doesn't have a lot of finesse in his storytelling. No, but you know, but even in 1977, we're not that far removed from Roger McKenzie and Frank Miller taking over the book. This Klaus is Jansen is already here. That's yeah. part of why this book looks so good. Yeah. This there's some darkness to this. Like this kid wants to kill himself. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, this is fun. It's great. If you love Paladin, this is a must-read 100 percent When Matt suggested the bounty hunter theme, I knew there was only one Marvel character that I knew I absolutely had to discuss. We don't want to let the listeners down. I mean, come on. The instant classic character find of 1994. Of course, I'm talking about Warrant. (laughs) First introduced in the pages of Web of Spider-Man number 110. It's written by Terry Cavanaugh with art by... Alex Savyuk and Steven Baskerville. If we had the rights, it would be blaring cherry pie on the show right now. <laughs> Obviously. Uh, there's, that's the only, it's the only, it's the only logical course of action. Here's your solicit. Again, courtesy of mycomicshop.com. The lizard is on the loose and leaving a cross country trail of death and destruction in his wake. Where is Doc Connors, alter ego going after escaping from the vault? Where else? his old stomping ground in the Florida Everglades. Meanwhile, the federal authorities hire a bounty hunter to trap and kill the lizard. No trial, no nothing. And the mercenary plans to deviously use Martha and Billy Connors as the bait, but that is not an acceptable solution for your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Mere months from the start of the clone saga, Web of Spider-Man is spinning its wheels churning out stories that 
almost no one remembers. Case in point, the savaging. That's actually the name of the storyline. <laughs> the savaging. It's a pretty standard mindless lizard story like we've gotten in the past. He's running amok. Kurt Connors is, has completely checked out. And even the cunning lizard persona is nowhere to be found, leaving nothing but a rabid animal. Naturally, the government sends Warrant, a bounty hunter known for indiscriminate violence and collateral damage to murder an American citizen without trial. I mean, he is a monster, Joe. Come on. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I mean, look, normally those sorts of all conspiracies, untrue, I'm sure, aren't set up within earshot of the person's psychiatrist. Look, man, if you knew how the deep state actually worked, I am sure you'd be so goddamn scared, Joe. <laughs> uh, and once again, I keep you no, safe. I keep you away from this stuff for a reason. Just like make sure you you use a lot, a lot of keywords when Googling the lizard, because you're going to end up with a lot of lizard people conspiracy yeah. stuff. And if you don't you want that the on truth. Your, boy, oh boy, does Warren suck. <laughs> he is nothing but a dead shot wannabe with a shitty Steven Seagal ponytail and a willingness to threaten small children. We don't see much of the fight between Warren and Spidey play out in this issue, but I can't imagine the guy causing Pete any real trouble. In my mind, he had some sort of jetpack or jet boots, but no, he just travels in full regalia by plane with the government handler and Dr. Kafka from wherever they were to New York City. When the lizard is in the Everglades, why are you even bothering? Yeah, like, is he, is this armor? Is he cybernetic? Is it stuck to him? Can he take this he's got, off? They say something about how he's got, like, cyber enhancements. And so, like, he, he puts on the thing and then, like, you know, I assume he's got, like, Deadshot vision. Okay. With the, but he can take it on but and the, off. But he's also got, like, wrist guns. Well, yeah, he takes it okay. off and looks like a normal dude. Okay. I just want to make sure this whole life wasn't like this, because then I would yeah, feel yeah, sorry no, 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 for no. him. There's no reason for him to be riding in the plane dressed like then this. Then I would None. feel sorry for him, and I wouldn't talk as much smack as I'm about to. No, no, <laughs> okay. no. Uh, I mean, I guess in defense of their plan, they don't know where the lizard is yet. That's yeah. why they got he's got to go to New York to threaten um, the Kids. lizard's kid. <laughs> Minors, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Terry Kavanaugh's script is it's pretty terrible. It's pretty, 90s schlock. I, I don't really want to dig uh, bag on any more than that. It's not good. Uh, Alex Saviak, though, his art would normally be a bright spot for me. Uh, he was a favorite of mine growing up, but unfortunately, his art here is very dated. Yeah. And also, he's trying so hard to be contemporary of the time. He's Rob Leefielding as hard as he can it, Rob Leefielding. It's not his strong suit. It's <laughs> no. not his strong suit. And the inks by Stephen Baskerville, who came onto the book late. Oof. Add a completely distressing, unappealing texture to everything in the book. It, the inks are so overdone. It's it's gross. And if you think I'm exaggerating, look at the close up of Mary Jane's mouth on page 22 Ugh. and tell me it, it doesn't look like she's got some kind of medical condition. Yeah, it's so bad. Web of Spider-Man was one of my favorite titles as a kid. It was the very first comic book that I ever actively sought to collect. But it limped along to its eventual cancellation with issue 125. If Marvel had let it die earlier, maybe we wouldn't live in a world where warrant exists. I'm giving this a leave it. Yeah, I laughed out loud in the scene where warrant goes to the face. Like this guy's supposed to be an exceptional bounty hunter, right? Like he's really good. And apparently he's only good because he is not afraid to threaten anybody <laughs> you know, like i will threaten old ladies i will threaten children he walks in points a gun at the lizard's kid and they do that thing where they put like the red outline around the word bubble so you know yeah. he's screaming and he that gun is armed kicks baby. a dorian points a gun at a kid and goes where is the lizard you know <laughs> jesus christ dude <laughs> like ice handles things better than this you gotta settle down you know <laughs> like this comic is a mess. Warren's yeah. armor is stupid at best. This is his own. Is Savia? Did he design this guy? He had to have, right? Uh, I mean, must have. This is Warren's first have. appearance. So Savik had to have designed him and he drew the hell out of him. He totally overdrew the armor. It looks so dumb. And I think 
the only thought process I can have here is he's like, oh God, I'm totally ripping off Deadshot. So I have got to distract everybody from the fact that this is a Deadshot ripoff by just putting as much stupid tech as I possibly can on this guy. Oh, but you know what? No helmet. I I want everybody to make sure they can see his flowing hair. <laughs> This is garbage. Right, yeah. This yeah. is garbage. It looks terrible. Yeah, you're right. The inks are so muddy that even Spider-Man's costume looks like it's dirty. I know, right? Panels. It's just it's, like smudges everywhere. Yeah, it's really bad. This is a leave it. This is a leave it. I don't ever care to see Warren again. <laughs> He's uh, a terrible yeah. character. Stop it. Just get out. Stop it. Just get Stop out. Stop trying to make Warren cool. He's not cool. And I'm not. He only appeared, as far as I can tell, he only appeared seven times. Yeah. And I'm not trying to pile on Alex Saviuk. This is the worst lizard I've ever seen. And Alex Salviak draws the lizard's tail coming directly out of his butt, between his butt cheeks, I poking I out you, of his pants. That's how they did it. It was like, Joe, it's like it looks a, terrible. It's like an artist. <laughs> it's like an artist drawing Wolverine's uh, claws coming out from behind his, his knuckles. Looks like between his, his knuckles. Looks like he's pooping out his tail. That's all I'm saying. It's not okay. It's no, fair. it looks like he's pooping out his tail. That's different. That's what I said. Oh, I thought you said pooping on. Sorry. No, pooping out his day. Oh, well, okay. I agree with that. We're going to stay on planet Earth just for another couple minutes here to talk about John Sable. Freelance, number one, from First Comics, 1983. This is written and drawn by Mike Grell. Here's your solicit. I took this from, or no, actually, I wrote this too. Here's your setup. I wrote this. John Sable's an ex-mercenary turned bounty hunter living in early 1980s New York under the alias of beloved children's writer B.B. Flem by day <laughs> and Sable by night. Because, you know, you got to diversify your portfolio, I guess. <laughs> Mike Grell has said he created the character as a cross between Mike Hammer and James Bond, which is why he's always featured with his Walter PPK handgun. In this first issue, President Ronald Reagan hires John to stop a hitman that's going to try and kill him while speaking at the UN, the hitman just happens to be another ex-merc from Sable's past. Fun fact! A young Gene Simmons of KISS bought the rights to John Sable in the hope of turning it into a movie starring Pierce Brosnan, and Simmons starred in the unaired TV pilot for what would become the CBS TV show starring a young Rene Rousseau. Grell's Sable was a huge cult hit for first comics in the 80s and a book that's been listed as an influence for a lot of creators that I love, but this is the first issue I've ever read. The script reads like a well-polished TV script. While Sable does wear a mask, he's not so much a superhero. The story is very grounded in real world, hard-boiled crime and spy intrigue. The guns in the issue look like very real guns. The fashion looks like late 70s, early 80s fashion. And the dialogue is also era perfect. Grell's art is excellent. At this time, he was perfecting his legendary style. His Sable's tall, serious man with wry wit and Paul Newman's looks. His mask Almost looks like a tribal facial tattoo. I don't really get it, but he only wears it when working at night. It does not cover his face. Like, if I put that mask on, there's no way I could trick Joe Patrick into thinking I was not Matt Bomb. <laughs> you know, it's pretty obvious who's under there. So, right. The story is a single shot 80s action adventure done in 26 pages, but it never feels rushed. I love this art. I can see why so many people have cited this first comic series as a seminal work, and I definitely plan on reading more of John Sable's adventures because the guy makes bounty hunting just look good. I'm giving it a buy it. I thought this was really cool. Yes, I liked it a lot, and I also have never read John Sable Freelance before now. Uh, this comic is also very horny, but not in a gross way. <laughs> no, this is horny in like more of an 80s yeah, like a classy, TV show. Yeah, like a classy, sexy kind of yeah, way, like right? Same 80s, amount of skin you'd get on a Mike Hammer, you know, or something. 80s, 80s cable, you know, late night kind of thing. Uh, I do like how they basically say without saying that he is hired for this job by the president of the United States. Well, I mean, it's... And I said Ronald, Ronald Reagan, Reagan, but they just make a it, joke. They never call him Ronnie, you know? No, they don't call him Ronald Reagan, but he looks like Ronald Reagan. He makes a reference to acting and he eats jelly beans. He's Ronald Reagan. Right. Well, and he says, tell Bonzo I said hello. And, right. And the president's like, Bonzo is dead. <laughs> <I'm> like, oh, <laughs> man. 
for those of you who are too young to know what that is, before Ronald Reagan became a Republican conservative messiah, he was working in liberal Democratic Hollywood making a movie called Bedtime for Bonzo, playing a doctor raising a chimpanzee that falls in love. Well, sure, it's a monkey. Why didn't you tell me? I did. It's the funniest film idea since Francis. Bedtime for Bonzo, the comedy hit of the year. All right, I'm sick of the planet Earth. Let's get back into space with Jack Kirby's Galactic Bounty Hunters number one from Marvel's Icon imprint. The year was 2006. It's written by Lisa Kirby, Michael Thibodeau, Steve Robertson, and Richard French. That's many writers. With art by Michael Thibodeau with Jack Kirby. Some uh, might say not, too many writers. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we'll get it. I'll get to it. Here is your solicit, and this is actually a solicit because this comic book is not that old in the scheme of things. An all-new series featuring characters and concepts created by Jack King Kirby. In this double-sized first issue, meet the Berkleys, your typical suburban California family. But when young Garrett Berkeley discovers his parents' secret that the science fiction stories his father writes aren't fiction at all, but autobiography, he's blasted into a whole new universe of adventure, mystery, and danger. Now Jack Berkeley must put down his pen, reassemble his old team, and take up the mantle of being a galactic bounty hunter for one final mission. I didn't know what I was getting into when I picked this, other than that it was a Jack Kirby comic without Jack Kirby. I, I mistakenly remembered it as one of his later ideas put out by Topps Comics in the 90s, but instead, it's a much more recent product of Marvel's old creator-owned imprint, Icon. In the back matter, Lisa Kirby talks about her experience bringing this unpublished concept to life in a really touching text piece from a daughter that clearly idolized her dad. The fact that she was a first-time comic writer does show in the script, but she has help from some capable family friends. Kirby delivers a bombastic story about alien bounty hunters interspersed with an Earth-bound subplot about a kid whose suspiciously buff children's author dad <laughs> won't let him pursue his dream to become a kick-ass magician. It's very silly, but it's also kind of charming especially the meta nod to the real life Kirby family. Like the mom and dad are named Jack and Rose Berkeley instead of Jack and Roz Kirby. Come on. Makes me wonder how uh, Lisa Kirby feels about her shithead brother. <laughs> if he does in fact exist because well, the brother in this is a real shit. Or maybe she just has, you know, problems with subtlety. <laughs> maybe at first glance, I was worried that Michael Thibodeau's art was stuck in the early nineties and I will admit before Matt has a chance to bring it up, there are a couple of early unfortunate camera angles focusing on the sexy cat lady's ass. A couple. But, I'm pretty sure the artist got paid by the butt. <laughs> no, it only happens a couple of times. And otherwise, I thought that the art was actually pretty great. His human characters remind me a lot of classic Thor artist Ron Friends and... Thibodeau does justice to Kirby's cosmic designs. It's it's full Kirby's cheese with all the lines and circuits and square fingertips, and it's it's all there. Granted, not all of those designs are winners, but they're wildly imaginative Jeez. at the very least. I was kind of dreading this issue, afraid that it would be a soulless attempt to milk the king's legacy, but Jack Kirby's Galactic Bounty Hunters is obviously a labor of love by a group of friends and family invested in bringing one of his unrealized dreams to life. It's not perfect, but I did think it was a lot of fun. I'm giving it a strong skim it. Joe Patrick. I I'm going to tread very lightly here because Jack Kirby is uh -huh. a legend. Yeah. But not every idea is going to be a winner. Oh, I know that. And I'm not saying that this is a winner. I'm not saying it is either. What I'm saying is Jack Kirby understood probably that this idea was not a winner. So he did not make this comic book and his daughter saw fit to do that for him. And God bless her celebrating her dad or whatever. I did not give a single shit about this comic book. <laughs> okay. This clearly was garbage. It was poorly written. It was dumb. It was trying to ape some things that Jack Kirby did in the past, but it, when Jack did it, 
Like it doesn't come off as comedy and it comes off as slapstick stupid in this comic book. And you don't think it came off as comedy back then? No, you don't I don't think it was silly back then. I don't think he was going for comedy in a lot of that. Like with, with what he did, I really don't. I think he was going for bombastic weirdness and he was a crazy person with crazy ideas. This just didn't work for me at all. The art is good. I, I agree. The art is good, but it is an artist aping Jack Kirby. And that's the best I can say about it. And one thing Jack Kirby didn't do is draw gigantic tits and great big twerking butts on his <laughs> women. Okay. So this is a leave. Times. This is a leave it from me. I don't care about this. It just seems like his daughter is trying to celebrate dad. Don't do it like this. Just don't. Celebrate don't, dad. You, yeah, there, there's your lesson, friends. Don't celebrate your dad. Just if you're gonna do it, do it with a reprint of something that we know was a hit, you know, and write a forward for it. You're not a comic writer, and these artists are not your dad. Don't do it. All right. You know what? That you're entitled to your opinion. I disagree. I think that you're judging it a little too harshly. I also think that you are maybe remembering some of Jack Kirby's dumber ideas a little bit Look, more fun. I, I remember flipping they Dippa deserve. perfectly well. Okay. <laughs> like I remember the newsboy Legion and all that crap. I get it. And when they did it again in Superman in the eighties, we just talked about it not too long ago. I hated it. It doesn't need to be done again. All right. Uh, how do you feel about, how do you feel about Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen? I, it's wacky and insane, but it's a thing of its time and existed in its time. And when you try and take it out of its time and reinvent it for today, all you do is make it look bad. That's all you do. You make it look bad. Agree to disagree about the intent of the project, but okay. Joe, when I came up with the theme for this cosmic long box, and I don't mean to pull the curtain back and let everybody know that we don't actually have a cosmic long box that makes us do this, but we don't. I had one bounty hunter on my mind that i knew everyone wanted to talk about and it was not death's head it was death's head too joe patrick this is oh i thought it was uh you know i thought it was um buckaroo buckaroo tim or whatever his name was high noon tex high noon tex it's sorry even easy like your name is too creative sorry <laughs> Buckaroo, buckaroo <laughs> tim is better i wanted to talk about the incomplete Death's Head, number one from Marvel 1992, a comic book I have no memory of, but I do know that there is this Death's Head 2 that was redesigned and does not look anywhere near as cool as the old Death's Head, and I want to no. know more about that character. This is written by John Freeman and Dan Abnett, but it reprints a bunch of stuff that I will list later on. The main story has art by Simon Colby. Here's your setup. Death's Head 2 has teamed up with a cybernetic woman named Tuck to explore his origins. It's the 90s, so Tuck is wearing an extremely deep V and has extremely large breasts. What can you do? This version of Death's Head is actually a cyborg named the Minion that was created by AIM scientist Dr. Evelyn Necker in the year 2020 AD, just a few years ago, uh, an alternate yeah. future of Earth 8410, and was sent into the time stream to absorb the knowledge and capabilities of 106 specific individuals in order to complete his programming to help avoid the prophecy that a threat would bring AIM's demise. Unfortunately, when Minion eliminated the mechanoid bounty hunter Death's Head and assimilated his mind into himself, the process scrambled his programming, leaving him with a new personality and with the personalities of all 105 victims active in his mind, it just so happens Death's Head, the original, is the most active. So, nothing real hot concept here. Yeah, you know. This comic is essentially an anthology reprinting old Death's Head stories from UK comics magazines like Transformers, Doctor Who, and Dragon's Claws. The opening story has Death's Head and Tuck investigating the original Death's Head's adventures with some very 90s art and an extreme look for Death's Head 2, complete with a blade hand and weird skin stretching over his mouth. I thought maybe it was like a Jonah Hex. Is like, that kind of a Jonah Hex scar? Homage yeah, but or something? It, but but really, it's more like he doesn't have enough skin to cover his If face. that is the story, it's nowhere on the internet. So I don't know. 
From there, the comic jumps into flashbacks provided by a computer system that's been tracking Death's Head for a billion years. Apparently, that's how old he is. We get a short story about Death's Head killing a Western-themed robot named High Noon Tex from Doctor Who magazine. After that, we get a short story about Death's Head meeting the fourth Doctor Who, Tom Baker, who tricks him into thinking he's giving him the TARDIS, but instead sends him to a future Earth where we get a reprint from Dragon's Claws magazine that was nearly impossible to follow. Joe Patrick, I ask you, if you had to guess, which Marvel UK magazine did the story of Death's Head meeting Doctor Who come out of? Was it Transformers the magazine, Doctor Who the magazine, or Dragon's Claws the magazine? Well, I guess it probably wasn't Doctor Who the magazine. That is correct. It was in was Transformers it? the magazine, written by yeah, Simon why not? Furman. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would have been my second guess because Simon Furman is a well-known Transformers writer. It's true. But I just love that UK comics are like, we don't give a shit. We are just here to tell stories. They're sure, all anthologies. I mean, Hold on tight, folks. <laughs> Ultimately, we learn very little about Death's Head or Death's Head 2, other than they're both very tough all and always in a bad mood. While his British stories are clever, I would argue they have much better art than the intro to this book. Yes, they do. Oh, my God. Trying to stitch these into a narrative that is an anthology, but not an anthology, makes it an absolutely bewildering read. Like. The standalone story with Doctor Who, fine, cute, I get it. The sure. standalone story with High Noon Tex, very short, yeah. but whatever. But trying to tie that Doctor Who story into the Dragon's Claws story, which read like something that had been running for 60 years. <laughs> it didn't make any sense. No. It didn't make any sense at all. <laughs> None. Like, I'm going to give it to skim it because the British comics are good. But it's a leave it as a comic book. As far as an idea to like reprint this stuff for American that audiences. That is not how that show. I'm this, not doing it. That I'm is not, not no. how this show it's works. It's going to be a skim it. It's going to be a skim it. I'm just saying the idea is a full on leave it because it does not do these very good British comics. They're clever and they're cute and they're very well drawn. It's doing them no favors whatsoever. And if you think you're going to trick 1990s Matt Bomb, who is heavy into Rob Leefield at this time who is heavy into Mark Silvestri and all this sleek, cool shit with like a full-on redesigned badass cyborg death's head. And then I get the old school British death's head. (laughs) What do you think you're trying to pull here? Come on. I I mean, at least I'll give them credit and, and, and say, at least they explained that they are looking into the past of a very different version of death's head. I suppose. You know, they they spell that out. Yeah. But all the love in the world to Dan Abnett and, you know, John Freeman, who I don't know. But, oh, plot by John Freeman. Eh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, the script is by Dan Abnett. Uh, the, the 90s framing story is not good. No. Like, it's no. It's not and, even a story, Joe. He kills two things and then turns on a computer. Right, you're right. And then there's a cliffhanger. Where it really shines is the flashback stories, obviously. And those, I believe, even though the first one's not credited, I believe that they are all written by Simon Furman with art by Jeff Sr. Because the art looks the same in all three. I don't. It's just that the the High Noon Tex one doesn't have credits. I don't think they are because I found another name attached to the High Noon Tex one. I'm not sure. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I know Simon Furman wrote. Well, to me, because it looks just I like I know the, Simon Furman wrote the Doctor Who one, but that's the only one that I could confirm was Doctor oh, Who. Oh, you know what? Maybe this is a little different. Okay, Marvel UK nerds, lay it on us. Who did these other stories? Because it's not well documented in this comic. So we got to lay it on us section in Discord now. Drop some knowledge on us. And so I guess they're trying to package this for American kids or American readers, but it's not. It's a failure in that regard. Yeah. I'm going to give this a skim it because I did like I did like reading the British stories or the older stories. They're all British, but I didn't need any of this 90s nonsense. It's bleh. said we were done with this earth stuff but i gotta take it back i gotta take it back not only to earth but the old west 
Burn. Jonah Hicks. It's like number 13. It's where bounty hunters were born. The Old West, right? I know. This is from DC Comics 2007. It's written by Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti with art by Jordy Bernay. Here's your solicit. Short and sweet. Part one of a horrifying three-part tale never before told. The weird Western origin of Jonah Hicks. Illustrated by European comics legend Jordy Bernay. In 2006, writers Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti brought Jonah Hex back with guns blazing in a character-defining run that lasted 70 issues. The character became popular enough that he survived the Flashpoint reboot and starred in the new 52 launch title, All-Star Western. Unfortunately, not by Palmiotti and Gray. No. Nope. In this issue, Gray and Palmiotti give us the heretofore unknown origin of Hex and they don't paint a pretty picture. Hex's past as a Confederate soldier isn't hand-waved away with some kind of moral justification. Whether he agreed with it or not, he fought on the side of slavery. It is what it is. I mean, I know a lot of people had a lot of reasons for doing a lot of things, but there you have it. He was also a merciless killer, even before he was tortured and maimed by a Union captain. But Jonah is somehow one of the less deplorable characters in a story full of deplorable characters. Spanish artist Jordi Bernay does an absolutely tremendous job on art duties. His minimal style still manages to convey all of the detail each scene needs, along with characters that are beautifully ugly and brutal. This run of Jonah Hex is quintessential Western comics that not only made me a fan of the genre, but of DC's Scarred Bounty Hunter as well. This gets a huge buy it from me. Yeah. Jordy Bernays is doing like a Joe Kubert thing here, like old school Western war Joe Kubert. That is so cool. I mean, well, it's also still very European. Yeah. It has a very European feel to it. Like, Definitely. A, like an old graphic novel. He's putting his stamp on it and his style. The guy's an amazing friggin' artist, but you can tell he did a bunch of homework. Old, uh, like just looking at old school Western comics. This is hard hitting. It's brutal. It's violent. It's everything that Jonah Hex should be. And every time they try to recapture this, they do it wrong. Just look at this. Just look at this run, you know, and just do this. If you want to do the supernatural thing, fine. Do the supernatural thing, whatever, you know, but I don't need him to go to the future. I don't need him wearing like the, you know, the goggle and stuff. Like, well, Hex, 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 Hex is silly. And we did review Hex number one, but it's true. No, I mean, yeah, you don't, this, Jonah Hex does not need reinventing. This stuff is masterful, and the best thing about Jonah Hex is he's not a good guy. He's a bounty hunter. He does dirty jobs for money. That's his thing. Well, and he's a he's a he is a he is a bad and dangerous man that finds himself on the right side through sheer dumb luck. Sometimes, other times, he's just doing a job, and that's I mean. That's the story well, of the old yeah, West, he, man. Look at Clint Eastwood I mean, and the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's not a good guy. He's well, a murderer. Right, but he's also you know? not like he's not robbing banks or killing kids. He's you know he's going after other bad men. Sure, but he's still a killer and he's still willing to do terrible he is things. A killer, you know, like this is yeah, not a guy true. that you marry. This is not a guy that you bring home to your parents. He is Jonah Hex. He's a bad man in a bad place doing a bad job, and I love it. This is rough, violent. It's a huge bias. He's not somebody you marry unless you're also equally bad. But that is a different issue of Jonah Hex. Oh, God. Uh, Tallulah Black, man. Like, yeah. they, no, I don't know if they actually get married. They don't like, get married. Has, they don't get married. No, but she like, but she gets pregnant. and Yeah, Tallulah oh, was bad. bad news, too. Oh, Real Tallulah, bad news. <laughs> that issue, Jonah Hex number 50, it is like a punch so in the good. gut. My last thought about Jonah Hex, this is a hot take. Maybe it's a hot take. I don't know. Jonah Hex 1 through 70, volume starting in 2006, is perfect. It is a perfect run of comics. Yeah. Not like that's some not issues are better take. than. That's not a hot take. Some issues are better than others, but the beauty of it is that the vast majority of the seven issue, uh, 70 issue run, they're one issue stories. Yeah. And they actually get, they lose a little something when they do multi art, a multi chapter arcs. I agree. And they do that. They do this thing that I'm crediting to Christopher priest, uh, where it's the, it's suddenly like, here's a little bit of a scene. And then like, 
chapter heading, you know, white text on a black background like he did in Black Panther or they did in Pulp Fiction. Sure. Uh, I love it. I love it so it's much. It's old school Western film. You know, Hollywood is all it is. It's great. Uh, I suppose. Yeah. 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 But yeah, Jonah Hex, Jonah Hex, read it. It's so good. I find it really hard to connect to him until they connected him to Batman. Then I was like, oh, okay, I'm on board. Yeah. <laughs> now that I know he was part of Arkham. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> into space to a galaxy long long ago and far far away i guess i don't know for this last review it's star wars the bounty hunters or a sing it's a one shot from dark horse 1998 it was part of a three one shots the bounty hunters this is written and drawn by tim truman this is the only issue of the bounty hunters you need to read the other two are terrible <laughs> so <laughs> here's your actual solicit from dark horse comics she moves in silence chooses her moment, and strikes without mercy. She is Aura Singh, the most feared bounty hunter that the Republic has ever seen, or has a talent for being in the right place at the right time, and an appetite for those places in the galaxy where chaos reigns and bounties are plentiful and challenging. Tim Truman is a lesser-known creator that deserves a lot more attention. He's famous for his work on Scout at Eclipse, Grimjack, and Hawkworld, the miniseries he did for DC that reinvented Hawkman. He's got a very detailed art style that uses heavy blacks with lots of crosshatching that gives his work a very classic EC horror feel, which makes him perfect for drawing any comic tough guy or girl in this case. You know what it reminds me of? Liam Sharp. Yeah, I I guarantee. Like I wouldn't, it would not surprise me if Liam Liam Sharp Sharp said that Tim was was a like Tim Truman was a direct inspiration. One hundred percent. I'll bet he loves this guy. His aura sing is no exception. She's curling her lips and frowning in every panel as she kills her way through everyone standing between her and her bounty. The story is a little rushed. It is a one shot, but Truman gets a lot done and even adds an unexpected twist ending that I didn't see coming. It's a tight package and a nice Star Wars one shot for a character that's kind of a blind spot for me since she came out of the prequels and her main spotlights were really in the Clone Wars TV series. I love Tim Truman, and he is great here, drawing the darker side of the Star Wars universe while making all his aliens and tech look stylistically appropriate without losing his own style. I bring that up because I was going to do a book called Scoundrel's Wages that Mel Ruby drew, and Mel Ruby was like, nah, I'm going to do my thing. (laughs) It was bad, bad, bad. (laughs) I'm giving this a buy it. This was cool as hell. Yeah, man. Like, I don't really get, I don't really get that into Star Wars comics. And I feel bad about it because I love Star Wars. It's just that every time I read Star Wars comics, I kind of get bored of them eventually. And so I just tend not to follow them for that month, for that long. This though is a one and done. And really just like, all you got to do is look at it. And and you are instantly sucked in because this artwork is stupid good. Yeah. Truman's and cool I think hell. that Tim, I think that Tim Truman is like, to me, Tim Truman occupies the same space in my brain as Mike Grell. As one of those don't, artists. Don't disagree. That's really, that's, that has certainly done a lot of mainstream work, but is also primarily known for his independent creator own stuff. Yeah. Like, uh, John Sable or Grimjack. Yeah, he's a creator's creator too. Like if you talk to artists, if you talk to writers, they're like that friggin' guy. I freaked out when I read those comics because they were doing something creator owned at a time where you weren't making any money doing that. You just weren't. Like some people blew up and made a bunch of cash. Look at you know Eastman Lorid and the well, Teenage Mutant yeah. Ninja Turtles. There, there was an independent comics boom in the eighties, so there, people were making money. But there was also an independent comics bust. Yeah, so. And like that stuff is all but forgotten except for a lot of creators and some nerds like us who just never stopped reading comics and go back and dip our toes into this stuff, you know? Yes. And uh, yeah, I I loved the ending and you know, I, it's full of twists and turns. The, the ending, I was like, Oh, that's bleak, but I, I did really like the, the way it ended. 
And yeah, it's like, yeah, man, or Singh, not a great person. No, there's a scene that takes place in a cave on Hoth and there's a character there and he's surrounded by like, wampas, I guess. Yeah, I suppose. And Although they must I will be say, wampa. Truman draws wampas like monsters from where the wild things are. Big time. They're real, they're you know, it's like um, they're very you know, rolled doll. <laughs> have you ever seen Christopher McQuarrie's original Star Trek designs? It's kind of like that, right? Where yeah. it's like mm, that's Chewbacca, but not. You mean Star you know, Wars? You said Star Trek. Yes, sorry, Star Wars. Uh, it's it's like that does not look like Chewbacca. Yeah, <laughs> you know, a little too fuzzy. Or it, it's like Darth Vader. But not quite. Yeah. Uh, and that's what these wampas look like. And then something happens when Aura Singh enters the enters the picture. I will not spoil. Uh, but I like cackled at my iPad. I was like, that it was so great. I made a note about but, it in my notes where I was like, really? <laughs> okay. I know. Like it's very so it, for one, okay, look, I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to spoil it. It's it, not a spoiler, Joe. Do you know how old this comic is? Come on. I, all right, I she's guess. She's wearing I mean, a wampa. <laughs> basically, yeah, she basically wears a wampa. She wears a wampa skin like a disguise and wanders into this cave and gets the drop on everybody, uh, which is very, very silly, but I still, I still thought it was awesome. This is a buy it. It's great. You know, I'm not, I'm like I said, I'm not big on Star Wars comics. This is was a really great one. It's a buy it. Before the Cosmic Long Box sends us back to our proper timeline, Joey, we need to pick one of these comics to enter the THN private collection. And I want to know which one of these bounty hunters was your favorite. Ugh, I should have been thinking about this the entire time. Why wasn't I thinking about it this entire time? Because it's a toss-up for me. Like, I really liked John Sable. It's not even hard for me, I mean, honestly, I really, I really liked John Sable and I love Paladin in general, but I'm giving mine to Jonah Hex. I'm giving mine to Jonah Hex. Yeah. And out of all of, out of all of these characters, Jonah Hex is my favorite. I think like the main idea behind a bounty hunter is they are not a hero. They are not a villain, but they're also not an anti-hero. Like they are doing a job and they understand that you have to do some terrible things for your job sometimes and that could mean killing a guy in front of his kid or i guess in the case of warrant pointing a gun at a kid <laughs> you know but jo- right, yeah you know jonah hex is like the perfect distillation of that hard mean messed up person that lives in a messed up world that just won't let the world kill him like i do this thing nobody else wants to do and that's just how it is you know and man i love this run of Jonah Hex and I love the way they depicted the character and it, it just hits on all these like old school western tropes for me where like nobody's yeah. a good guy they're all bad guys you know like oh god right. what a terrible yeah. time to live you know I love it it's just so great it's Jonah Hex I'm going to put the John Sable one in the permanent collection because I think we've sung about that Jonah Hex well now you, you zigged when I thought you were going to say I'm saying I'm Jonah Hex is my favorite bounty hunter no question but i'm putting that john sable book in the permanent collection because i legit want to read more john sable after reading that and it was great the art was great the, everything about it just kicked ass and now i see why guys like mark wade scream about this book because it's fantastic it's fantastic i mean you're you're not wrong there there are very few wrong picks uh, this week other than Web of Spider-Man number two, <laughs> one, ten. I would argue. I would argue the Galactic Bounty Hunters can suck. Look, <laughs> an argument can be made for the Galactic Bounty Hunters, but I'm done arguing with you about it. Uh, the only deplorable pick, uh, the only absolute worthless pick, as well as Spider. <laughs> Constituted back in 2023, we find ourselves in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, and it looks like the Moloids have converted the place into a trashy bar from like every 2000s movie, so they can celebrate International Ladies' Night with half-price shots for the party girls. Matt, aren't the Moloids sexless? I honestly don't know. Do they maybe think that like ladies are coming to this party? Macho, did you have something to do with this? Negative. Would you like me to engage murder mode? Okay, stand by on murder mode. I'm gonna go find out what's going on here. Why don't you tell the nerds about your must-read pick 
for uh, next new comic book day, Wednesday, March 15th, in the meantime. Hey, guys, can we turn this down and talk about this for a minute? My pick for next week is Superman Lost number one. I told myself, you know what? I'm not going to go three weeks in a row picking a Superman comic, but here we are. Yep. It's from DC. It's $4.99. It's written by Christopher Priest with art by Carlo Pagulian. Here's your solicit. Superman's Odyssey of Solitude. After Superman is called away on a routine Justice League mission, Lois Lane awakens to find a complete stranger standing in her living room. The Man of Steel home much sooner than expected reveals he has in fact been lost in space for 20 years nothing and no one seem familiar to him anymore and the timeless bond between them has been severed or has it can love conquer all superman's 85th anniversary celebration continues with this all-new blockbuster 10-issue series from the creators of the eisner nominated deathstroke series it's true. They they did do Deathstroke, and that book was good. When it was really was good. Yeah. So this is kind of in its own corner of the DC universe. Gotta Superman be. just got back from a multi, uh, <laughs> that's, you know. That's, that's where I was going to go with this. It's like, okay, so hold on. Superman just got back from space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he left uh, prison, I mean, went back to space for 20 years, and he just got back again. <laughs> I, I, I mean, we're blue, we're blue sky in it here. This is it's a standalone story. But you had me at Christopher Priest, man. Like, I'm... I, I, I want to read this. I want to read it so bad. And I love the idea. Superman disappeared and now he's back. But to everyone else, no time has passed, but he has forgotten everything. I think it's going to be really good. Carlo Pagulian is a very talented artist. He's fantastic. I I feel bad for these guys that it's just kind of being dropped and, and hopefully it sells well. (laughs) Well, it's it's not not just like they announced, like they announced this, like they made a a big time announcement. I know. I know. I'm not saying they didn't, but like the timing is kind of like, what? (laughs) I mean, yeah, (laughs) that's all I'm saying. My pick for next week is Hellcat. Number one from Marvel. It's four 99. It's written by Christopher Cantwell with art by Alex Linz. Here's your solicit. Leaping from the pages of Christopher Cantwell's Iron Man run. Hellcat is back. Patsy's back on the West Coast, living in a demon house haunted by the ghost of her mother. Happens, I guess. When someone close to Patsy's inner circle is murdered, Hellcat becomes the prime suspect. Now Patsy must prove her innocence and evade both the police and the supernatural sleepwalkers. To add to the perils, she faces her demonic ex. Damon Hellstrom shows up. That's the son of Satan. And that's never a good thing. A supernatural superhero murder mystery. So I picked this because Christopher Cantwell writes the hell out of Patsy. She's so good when he writes her. And I love that they're going to finally address what went down with her and Damon Hellstrom. They had a really bad relationship. And if he's wearing a shirt, I'm going to put this first issue down and I'm going to give it a leave it. But for now, I'm excited. Okay. I know that I read the the setup to this story not that long ago. I can't remember exactly where it happened, but uh, she yeah inherited this house in her hometown uh, on the West Coast, and it's haunted by the ghost of her dead mother, uh, which is, you know, when you know it, it's just like you thought you were rid of her. She exploited your childhood. They did the they did the whole. They kind of adapted the whole thing that they ended up doing in the uh, in Jessica Jones, where her mom turned her into like a children, like a comic book star, like an Archie comics kind of. And that's where that's how they incorporated the Patsy Walker comics from the golden age into continuity. It's like they were all written by her mom to exploit her teen years. That's fun. Which I think is wonderful. It's super fun. And Cantwell, I love the guy. And I, I think that, this is going to be a ton of fun. I don't know Alex Lynn's off. off new mutants. Of, uh, been working on my memory. Been working on new mutants. He's really good. Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The THN trade of the week for March fifteenth is the big guy and Rusty the boy robot trade paperback second edition. It's from Dark Horse. It's nineteen ninety nine. It's written by Frank Miller with art by Jeff Darrow. Here's your solicit. Front and center, America. Here comes action. Here comes adventure. Here comes the big guy and Rusty the boy robot. A roller coaster ride through the minds of Jeff Darrow and Frank Miller, the tag team that set you reeling with their hard-hitting series, Hard Boiled. Everything you remember about being 38 years old. 
<laughs> Sorry, that threw me off. Yeah, I'm not sure what that's Every, about. Uh, I think it just uh, means you're stunted, but that's okay. Everything you remember about being 38 years old and watching monster movies is right here, but with all the magnified detail that you always wanted to see. This includes the Dark Horse Presents special, and it features a brand new cover by Jeff Darrow and Dave Stewart. So we were just talking about this in the THN gang hang last weekend. I brought up Rusty the Boy Robot and the big guy, and everybody was like, huh? I'm like, you guys don't know this? Oh, my God. (laughs) I know. Jeff Darrow is a freak talent of an artist. He is absolutely amazing. And if you want to read the goriest, most detailed, ridiculously action-packed, oversized comic book of all time, here it is. And I dare you to find something more over the top than this. It is bonkers. Absolutely bonkers fun. Oh, my God. This is back when we still liked Frank Miller. Well, yeah, you know, but he also doesn't doesn't draw it. No, no. They kept his feet away from this one. The joke is, I always say he draws with his feet. Now, I, but, I, you didn't have to explain sorry, that. I totally sorry. get it. <laughs> All right, get the moloids back in here. Let's do some shots and clean this crap up. Macho, cue the dungeon synth. Dungeon synth, go. Now that you know what we're picking up, let us know what you're reading over at our Discord in the new comics channel. And be sure to let us know if you liked our picks or if we owe you a Vegas bomb or a sex on the beach. Make it up to you, you know, one of them frilly dreams. Sure. And if you dig the music you hear on THN, be sure to check our show notes. We've got track listings and links to the artists and their music. Go support these cats. Independent music needs your help just as much as comics. Excelsior! Oh. <laughs> that is it for THN 697! Next week, we are back to reviewing new comics, and we're going to have a little sampling of our Patreon Extra for you. In the meantime, check out our Nerd News Show. Hit your feed on Mondays and join us for the THN Cover to Cover Gang Hang on Saturdays at 11 o'clock Central Time. Check out our Discord for details on how to do that. Joe Patrick, tell them what else they can do while at our Discord. Are you looking for a new read? Do you have a question that only a two-headed nerd can answer? Have you got a hot take as seen in last week's episode? Sign up for our Discord with the link at TwoHeadedNerd.com slash Discord, where we've got channels for all our segments. Or you can call the THN hotline 402-819-4894 and leave a message or send an MP3 to TwoHeadedNerd at gmail.com and we will put you on the show. If you're new to the show and you would rather barf redheaded slut shots all over us than listen to another second, I assure wow, you. Wow, you're gonna get you're gonna that's what you're gonna go with on International Women's that's Day. That's the name of the shot. It's a redheaded slut. That's what they call them. What do you want me to do about it? I didn't make it uh, up. All right. Come on. All right. I assure all you, right. it's only because you're lightweight and you need to learn how to hold your alcohol and you just haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital longbox archive at twoheadednerd.com. THN is a listener-supported podcast, and it wouldn't be possible without the generosity of donors like our newest patron. He's been a donor before. He just upped his patron. No, he had to go away, and now he's back, and that's what happens. You go away and you come back, you're a new patron. You get the shout-out. Like our returning patron, JD Gotta Catch. Things happen. We get it. Sometimes you're like, you know what? Joe and Matt pissed me off so much, I'm not giving them another cent. And then you're like, ah, that thing about the lizard's tail coming out of his butt's pretty funny. I'm going to give him five bucks. Anyway, if you like what you hear every week, <laughs> it's easy to support this show. You can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com backslash two-headed nerd. You know what? If uh, if our discourse about where and how the lizard's tail comes out of the back of his body gets us any new patrons at all, I will never argue with you about anything ever again. I'll tell you what, the more I look at it, and it's been staring me in the face this entire time on my second monitor, I was wrong. Alex Saviak draws a tail coming out of his right butt cheek, which is even weirder, (laughs) okay? (laughs) It's just weird, man. Before we sign off on this International Women's Day, our weekly shout-out goes to all of the female and female-identifying creators that have been making the comics industry great since day one. We don't deserve you. you. You guys work too hard, and we don't deserve you, all right? 
Thank you for all you do, ladies. And thank you, Matt, for your boundless enthusiasm. It's true. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just use your pile to destroy the patriarchy. This is the Two-Headed Nerd. Signing off. I mean, if it destroys the patriarchy, he can have it. Yeah, but then your comics are in terrible condition. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's a good thing, but you couldn't use something else, you know? One step forward, five steps back. That's the Two-Headed Nerd way. <laughs> <laughs>